Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the Serial Killer Podcast, the podcast dedicated to serial killers, who they were, what they did, and how. Episode 148. I am your Norwegian host, Thomas Rosaland Vyborg Thun. Last episode ended with Inspector Massou finally realizing how Dr. Petillon had managed to murder so many people without being detected. He had donned the mask of a valiant doctor serving the French Resistance, supposedly helping Jews and others hunted by the Nazis escape. In reality, he had, under the nighttime cover of darkness, lured them to his quote-unquote clinic at the Rue Le Sœur. There, the desperate people were subjected to a terrible fate. Being shackled in Dr. Petillon's triangular murder chamber and in various sadistic ways killed, before being eviscerated and burned or thrown in the caustic lime pit. Tonight, we near the end of this wartime serial killer saga. Dr. Marcel Petillon is finally apprehended and he faces his ultimate challenge. Enjoy. As always, I want to publicly thank my elite TSK Producers Club. Their names are Andrea, Cassandra, Christy, Cody, Corbin, Fawn, Gilly, James, Jennifer, Juliet, Kathy, Kylie, Lisa, Lisbeth, Marilyn, Meow, Russell, Sabina, Samira, Skortnia, Shauna, Tony, Trent, Val, and Vaughn. You are the backbone of the Serial Killer podcast, and without you, there would be no show. You have 
my deepest gratitude. Thank you. I am forever grateful for my elite TSK Producers Club, and I want to show you that your patronage is not given in vain. As mentioned in the last episode, going forward, all TSK episodes will be available 100% ad-free to my TSK Producers Club on patreon.com slash theserialkillerpodcast. No generic ads, no ad reads, no jingles, I promise. And of course, if you wish to donate $15 a month, that's only $7.50 per episode, you are more than welcome to join the ranks of the TSK Producers Club too. So don't miss out and join now. Masu's theory would soon be confirmed. He was visited by a man named Jean Guido, who, together with a Polish Jew named Joachim Guchinov, owned a fur store at 69 Rue Comartin. In late 1941, Guido told Masu, Goshinov was frightened by the increasingly harsh German treatment of Jews and toyed with the idea of leaving France. His physician and neighbor, Dr. Petillon, had told him this would be possible. For 25,000 French francs, he could obtain a false Argentinian passport and safe passage to South America. Guido had helped Guchinov pack on the eve of his departure. According to Petillon's instructions, all markings were removed from his clothes and $1,000 in U.S. currency was sewn into the shoulder pads of a suit. Guchinov also took a quantity of silver, gold and diamonds worth 500 to 700,000 French francs, another 500,000 French francs in cash and his five finest sable coats. Obviously, Guchinov was a significantly wealthy man. Massou summoned Guchinov's wife, René, who told the rest of the story. On the 2nd of January, 1942, she and her husband had dined together. Then he gathered his bags and consulted a map of Paris to find the street where he would meet Petillon. Madame Guchinov went with her husband as far as the Rue Pergolaise, where he told her that he must continue the journey alone. They kissed and said goodbye, and Madame Guchinov had not seen him since. Massou also consulted a map 
and saw that the Rue Pergolès intersects the Rue Le Soeur. Two months after her husband left, René Gouchinov had gone to ask Petillon for news of him. The doctor had shown her a brief note in Gouchinov's handwriting, undated, saying that he had travelled via Dakar and had safely reached Buenos Aires. Subsequent letters, one allegedly on the letterhead of the Alvear Palace Hotel in Buenos Aires, said that his new business there was doing well, and that she should leave France and come at once. When Massou asked why she hadn't gone, the reasons she gave the commissaire were obscure and contradictory. Petillot himself would later say she had found a lover she preferred to her husband. Joachim's letters stopped, and she wondered, but did nothing. She was a Jew, and Jews did not like to make themselves conspicuous in Nazi-occupied France. Even after the Petillon affair had broken, she had been unwillingly dragged into it by Guedo's report. Massou did not know what to make of her, but her husband's case seemed clear. They had found items belonging to Gouchinov at Petillon's mansion of horrors at the Rue Le Soeur. His remains were actually one of the few positively identified later in the case. So, this leaves us, dear listener, with a dark scenario of one of the uses of Petillon's murder room. After Petillon managed to incapacitate his unsuspecting victims, he would shackle them to the wall in his triangular room. There, he could torture them at will, sometimes perhaps for fun, other times in order to get something he wanted from the victim. In Gutchinov's case, a letter written to Madame Gutchinov claiming safe passage and arrival in Argentina. René Gustave Nezondet was an amiable, loose-fleshed man just over six foot three. His left eyelid drooped when addressed, and when he spoke, he unconsciously compensated by raising that eyebrow, a habit that gave him an almost comically sinister facial expression. He was forty-eight years old, and a native of the Ion. For over twenty years, he had known Dr. Marcel Petillon. Roland Albert Porchon, Nezondé's friend, had already voluntarily gone to the police a day or two after the discovery at the Rue Le Soeur. An overweight, middle-aged man with an unattractive face, Porchon was currently running a trucking firm and second-hand furniture shop. These were the latest in a long series of semi-legitimate ventures. His path had occasionally crossed that of the police, and in exchange for favours or oversights, or simply out of generosity towards close acquaintances, he sometimes supplied information to the police, particularly to Inspector René Bouguet of the Criminal Brigade, a friend for several years. 
on the 13th of March. He had telephoned both Boguet and Commissaire de Police Lucien Doulet, saying he had important information to give them about Dr. Petillon. But his main reason for calling, police soon learned, was to cover up his own participation in an abortive attempt to send a couple to Petillon's fake escape network. In March 1943, a man named René Marie and his wife Marcel heard through an obscure chain of friends that Porchon knew someone who could help them escape from France. According to Porchon, he had sent them to Petillon via Nezondet. Petillon told them the escape prize was 45,000 French francs per person and that they should sell all their furniture. Porchon offered them 220,000 French francs for their possessions. The couple were worried and uncertain what to do, and when a friend reported unsavory rumors about Petillon's professional life, they resolved not to go. Immediately after learning of the Rue Sœur discovery, Porchon came to the Maries and instructed them not to go to the police. He suggested several rationalizations they could give if their names were found at Petillon's apartment, and if the police should come to make inquiries, Porchon told the couple he had enough problems already, without risking implication in a murder case, and he hoped to keep out of it all at all costs. He also went to Inspector Bouguet and asked him to cover up his involvement. The police officer initially agreed, believing, he later admitted, that here was a question of an honest escape organization that patriotism demanded he protect. He knew nothing of the Petillon affair at the time, but when he confidentially told an associate at headquarters of Porchon's visit, Bouygues learned what was now involved and immediately went to Inspector Massou. When taken before Judge de Instruction Berry on the 17th of March, Prochon claimed that he had known of Petillon's crimes all along. In late June 1942, he confessed, Nezondet had told him everything and had proclaimed that, and I quote, Petillon is the king of criminals. I never would have thought him capable of such a thing. End quote. Porchon had asked him what he was talking about, and Nezondet told him of sixteen corpses stretched out at the Rue Le Sœur that he had seen with his own eyes. According to Nezondet, they were completely blackened, and he believed they had been killed by poison or injection. When asked why Petillon would do this, Nezondet supposed Petillon asked them for money to pass them into the free zone, and instead of helping them escape, he killed them. Nezondet had asked Porchon to remain silent about the murders and had assured him that he would go to the police himself as soon as the war was over. Nezondet, for his part, initially denied the charges. 
then confessed on the 22nd of March. He claimed that he first learned of the Roule Sœur slaughter in November or December 1943, when Petillon was in Gestapo custody. Besides the corpses, he had also seen a by now missing diary, which listed the names of 60 victims. By April 1944, ten suspects in L'Affaire Petillon were in prison. Their names were Maurice and Georgette Petillon, Fourier, Pintard, Porchon, Nezondet, Malfette, Monsieur and Madame Albert Neuhausen, and Léon Arnoux. Charges against them ranged from murder and conspiracy for Maurice and Malfette down to receiving stolen goods. Curiously, while Maurice, Nezondet and Neuhausen were held for over a year, Georgette, Fourier, Pintard and Malfette were released with the others after four or five months. Ultimately, all charges against the quote-unquote conspirators were dropped. The prosecutor concluded that although Pintard, Fourier and the other procurers had played revolting roles and had accepted money under guise of patriotism, they appeared to have been ignorant of Petillon's real activities. He signed the release for Maurice and Georgette with mixed feelings. He consoled himself with the thought that, and I quote, even if justice can do nothing against them, the name that they bear and whose sad reputation affects them personally may serve as a constant source of shame unless Petillon's amoral numbness has conquered them as well. End quote. The decision to release Maurice who quite obviously knew much more than he cared to admit, was probably partly due to the fact that he was found to have terminal cancer. As a matter of fact, he would die shortly after his brother's trial. Above all, as the case against Petillon grew more complex, the prosecutor saw that trying to juggle ten incidental charges of complicity would only turn the trial into a circus and weaken his case against the one central figure. Meanwhile, all this took place, the doctor himself was still on the loose. As the weeks and months went by, the police gained fairly thorough knowledge of who Petillon was and just what he had done. But the man himself had vanished without a trace, when he hopped on his bicycle and rode away from the Rue Le Sœur. The reported sightings, inevitably following any well-publicized crime, began pouring in. An occultist wrote that Petillon had escaped to Morocco, via Marseille. Another insisted that he was alive and living in the newly section of Paris, at either number 4 or 20 Boulevard Jukerman or else two or four Rue de Chartres, 
Still another occultist said he lay dead on a country road in the Yon. The police checked all of these leads, not because they believed them, but out of fear of looking ridiculous should they prove correct. People reported seeing Petillon all over France. It was simultaneously reported that he had been arrested at the Spanish and the Belgian borders, and that he had been boarding a ship for South America. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Among the rouleseur mail forwarded to Masu were a coded letter, which could have been a message from one of Petillon's resistance comrades, or a ruse by Petillon to make one believe that it was. By the end of April 1944, Petillon was no longer front-page news. Every few days, the newspapers published the results of Judge Berry's latest interrogation or an updated list of victims. But there was not much else to report. On June 6, the Allies landed in Normandy, and from then on the Nazi-controlled press spoke of little but the shattering Allied defeats. The Germans were victorious everywhere, they said, yet each day the Allies paradoxically moved closer and closer to Paris. On the 19th of August, with General Jacques Leclerc's French 2nd Armoured Division still miles from the city, the Paris police went on strike and held the prefecture against German tank attacks. The Résistance 
set up barricades, and engaged in bloody street fighting against the better-equipped but disorganized German troops. The City of Lights, which had for years been plunged into the darkness of Nazi occupation, was surrendered to the French army on the 25th of August 1944. Massu's resources were almost obliterated following D-Day, and the effort to catch Petillon came to a crashing halt for several months. However, as the war moved east and Paris gradually came back to life, Massou once again took up the hunt for Petillon. Having studied Petillon for such a long period of time, Massou reasoned he knew enough to try to entrap him. He did this by having a more or less fictional story published in a major newspaper named Resistance. The title of the piece, I quote, Petillon, Soldier of the Reich. The story detailed how Petillon had joined the Parti Populaire Française, a French collaborationist political and military group known to work with the Germans to fight against members of the Resistance. It went on to state that Petillon, dressed in a German uniform, had left on the 7th of March for Pont-Saint-Esprit, near Avignon, to engage in anti-resistance activities. The ruse, if such it was, succeeded. Several days later, a letter was given to the paper Resistance via Petillon's lawyer, René Florian which the newspaper published on the 18th of October. The letter explained in detail Petillon's resistance activity, claiming the story about Petillon being a Nazi existed only in some policeman's sick imagination and ended with these noble words, and I quote, The author of these lines, far from having committed dishonorable acts, Far from having forgiven his torturers and even farther from having aided them, adopted a new pseudonym immediately after his release by the Germans in January 1944 and asked for a more active role in the Resistance so that he could avenge the hundreds and thousands of Frenchmen killed and tortured by the Nazis. He remained in contact with his friends and fought for the liberation to the best of his abilities, despite the constant fear of arrest. He is still doing all he can for the cause, and begs your pardon if he cannot take the time to get involved in polemics on this matter. Having lost everything but his life, he is selflessly risking even that under an assumed name, scarcely hoping that pens and tongues finally freed from their shackles, will now tell a truth so easy to guess and forget the filthy crowd lies that it takes about two grains of good French common sense to see through. Signed, Petillon. End quote. The police were elated. Certain oblique references and the rapidity of his reply made them suspect that he was still in Paris, and probably serving in the French forces of the interior. 
On the 31st of October, 1944, a Captain Simonin and three other military officers went to the metro station San Mande Turel, just outside the eastern city limits, at 7 a.m., and loitered there inconspicuously for more than three hours. At 10.15, Dr. Petillon, alias Henri Valéry, entered the station and walked toward the platform. One of Captain Simonin's men asked him the time. As Petillon raised his arm to look at the watch he was wearing, a watch belonging to one of his victims named Joseph Réaucreux, handcuffs were slapped on his wrist. A violent kick sent him to the ground, and the four men pounced on him and bound his feet, then carried him out to a waiting car. On Petillon's person, they found a pistol, 31,700 French francs in cash, and 50 documents in six different names. Simonin conducted the first interrogation before turning him over to military security, which in turn sent him to police judiciaire headquarters. Petillon's defense was a plea of complete innocence. He admitted killing certain enemies of France as a resistance member, but denied any murders for profit. According to Petillon, he first became aware of corpses stashed at the 21 Rue Le Sœur in February 1944, after his release from Nazi custody. He assumed the dead collaborators had been killed and dumped by members of the Resistance network he belonged to. This network just happened to be long since scattered and unable to verify his story. Petillot admitted to having asked Brother Maurice for quicklime to dissolve the bodies and camouflage their odor. Petillot was housed on death row at Santé prison while authorities investigated his claims. Strangely, for a patriotic hero, he had no defenders in the leadership of recognized resistance groups. Some knew him as a small-time hanger-on, a fraud, or not at all. Other groups, described in detail by Petillon, proved to be non-existent. No record survived of his alleged bombing forays, assassination of Nazis, or tests of his various so-called secret weapons. Prosecutors finally dismissed Petillon's story and charged him with murdering 27 victims for plunder, an estimated 200 million French francs in cash, gold, and jewels that was never recovered. Petillon's trial began on the 18th of March, 1946, at the Palais de Justice, before a panel of three judges and a seven-man jury. René Florian defended Petillon. Prosecutors were helped by twelve civil lawyers who were hired by the relatives of Petillon's victims. The doctor took an active role in his own defense, bantering with judges and prosecutors, grilling witnesses, exchanging jibes with the private attorneys. 
Petion claimed to have invented secret weapons, but refused to describe them because he thought the information could only be used against France. When confronted with the names of his victims, many of them Jews, he degraded them, calling them traitors and degenerates. Many fugitives had survived Petillon's escape routes, Petillon testified, but none were identifiable because the fugitives changed names frequently. Rebuked by the chief judge Michel Lesser for doodling in court, Petillon retorted, and I quote, I am listening, but it doesn't really interest me very much. End quote. On the trial's fifth day, judges and jurors visited 21 Rue Le Soeur. As he passed through a phalanx of police and jeering neighbors, Petillon quipped, and I quote, Peculiar homecoming, don't you think? End quote. Dr. Petillon maintained his hero's posture to the end, admitting that he had killed 19 of the 27 victims found on Rue Le Soeur. According to him, they were all Germans and collaborators, of course, ranked among the 63 enemies of France whom Petillon admitted killing between 1940 and 1945. The other 44 were not identified, with Petillon telling the court, and again I quote, I don't have to justify myself for murders I am not accused of committing. End quote. In fact, he had already said more than enough. His lawyer, René Florian's summation hailing Petillon as a hero of the Resistance, won a standing ovation from the courtroom audience, but the judges and jurors held a very different view. After deliberating for three hours, a mere 90 seconds for each of the 135 criminal charges, the court convicted Petillon on all but nine counts. He was acquitted of killing Nelly Denise Hotin, but found guilty of 26 other premeditated murders. Petillon's death sentence was a foregone conclusion, although it did not seem to face him in the slightest. Attorney Florian appealed the conviction and sentence, citing two complaints. First, he maintained that a mistrial should have been granted after Judge Lesser and two later dismissed jurors early in the trial had publicly declared their belief in Petillon's guilt. Furthermore, Florian charged, witness Marguerite Braunberger and her maid were perjurers. They lied in maintaining that Dr. Braunberger was dead instead of hiding out in South America. All three points were rejected, and Petillon's death sentence was affirmed. The day before judgment was rendered, guards found an ampoule concealed in Petillon's prison uniform. They suspected it was cyanide, but the contents proved to be a sedative, smuggled into prison when Petillon arrived the previous October. 
The prisoner seemed calm, smiling as he asked his guards, and I quote, When are they going to assassinate me? End quote. He refused to see a priest, preferring, as he said, to take his baggage with him. Petion had been scheduled to die on the day his appeal was rejected, but the guillotine malfunctioned that morning and his execution was postponed. At two on the morning of the 25th of May, Hundreds of policemen barricaded the streets within a radius of 250 meters around the Santé prison. At 3.30, Monsieur de Paris, the official title of the executioner, arrived at the prison gates with his three blue-clad valets and a horse cart carrying the guillotine. The mechanism was so precisely constructed that not a single hammer blow was required during its assembly. There were only faint sounds of wood knocking together in the dark courtyard as the heavy fifteen-foot-high grooved uprights were fastened to the supporting base. There was a faint glimmer of light when the executioner named Desforneau removed the seven-kilogram triangular steel couperette from its leather sheet and mounted it on the forty-five-kilogram weight that would send it plunging down upon Petillon's neck. At 4.10 a.m., the streetlights around the prison were extinguished, and the basket, the size of a small office waste paper can, was placed beneath the guillotine. Ten minutes later, four cars drew up in front of the prison gates, bringing Florian, his assistant Ayash, Dupin, Goletti, Dr. Paul, and a dozen other police and court officials. Eight minutes later, just after dawn, Dupin, Goletti, Florian, and Ayash entered cell number seven and awakened Petillon, who was sleeping peacefully. Dupin spoke the traditional words. Petillon, have courage. The time has come. Petillon made an obscene reply. The chains were removed from Petillon's hands and feet, and he changed from the black prison uniform into the suit he had worn during the trial. He asked for paper and ink, and for twenty minutes calmly wrote letters to his wife and son then gave them to Florian. As Petillon was led into the corridor, prisoners in the neighboring cells pounded infernally on the doors and bid him farewell. He was offered the traditional cigarette and a glass of rum. He refused the rum and was smoking peacefully when the prison chaplain asked if he had a confession to make or would like to hear mass. Petillon agreed to hear mass, since his wife had told the chaplain she truly wanted him to, but said to the priest that he was not a religious man and had a clean conscience. He was led past the door that opened on the courtyard. Paper had been taped over its windows to hide the guillotine, only two feet away. In the clerk's office, he signed the register, his hands were tied behind his back, 
the nape of his neck was shaved, and his shirt collar was cut off. Two valets led Petillon out the door and down three steps to the courtyard. Dr. Paul, after fifty years and hundreds of executions, later said, and I quote, For the first time in my life, I saw a man leaving death row, if not dancing, at least showing perfect calm. Most people about to be executed do their best to be courageous, but one senses that it is a stiff and forced courage. Petiot moved with ease, as though he were walking into his office for a routine appointment. End quote. Petillon smiled at the Monsieur de Paris, and before the executioner lashed his feet together and strapped him to the tilting table, the prisoner turned to Florian and the assembled witnesses. His last words were, and I quote, Gentlemen, I ask you not to look. This will not be very pretty. The blade fell at 5.05 a.m. It is rumoured that one court official had concealed a camera beneath his robes and took a photograph at the instant Petillon's head left his shoulders. In the rumoured photo, Petillon was smiling. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. And with that, we come to the end of this serialized expose of Dr. Marcel Petillon. Next episode, number 149, in number, will feature a brand new serial killer case. So, as they say in the land of radio, stay tuned. Finally, I wish to thank you, dear listener, for listening. If you like this podcast, you can support it by donating on patreon.com slash theserialkillerpodcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, facebook.com slash theskpodcast, or by posting on the subreddit theskpodcast. Thank you. Good night, and good luck. Good luck.